According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs 14 once again, ready to move on. I think we covered everything down through verse 14, verses 13 and 14 a week ago. And now we can get our first look at verses 15 and 16. Really, uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, I think, um, we'll take as a segment, block them together. Before we do get started, though, I'm going to check my telephone, this noise-making device. Ooh, it's still on. Make noise. Let me turn that off. Vibrate mute. There we go. Now, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we, uh, any vibrating that goes on will be the Holy Spirit that convicts us of His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning, thankful for Your grace and truth, and just so blessed Father, you uh, have abundantly supplied for us. I thank you for Austin Bible Church. I thank you for brothers and sisters that love you and love your word and uh, are diligent to rightly divide the word of truth. And even uh, even the fine points and the the tiny details, Father, it's a thrill to uh, to be able to discuss all things, even the deep things of God. We call upon your faithfulness now to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless us through uh, through the message of Proverbs. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs 14. And so our outline, we've had nine points of study down through verses 13 and 14. And a week ago, we gave you seven, eight, and nine. So it was like we were galloping on a horse or something. Looking at verses 10 and following, the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. And so uh, we had some points there as we were looking at it under point seven. Personal suffering is personal. You know, you can, you can lie about it. You can try to talk yourself out of it, but the heart knows. You're, the core of who you are really knows. And, uh, and uh, that's what we were dealing with there in verse 10. The heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. Who is able to share the innermost sufferings of your heart? Well, God does, thankfully. God looks upon the heart, and God knows every heart struggle. And, uh, you know, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. When we talk about a stranger, you have a stranger, you have a friend, you have a brother, uh, even she who lies in your bosom, the most intimate one that uh, actually can share some aspect of your soul when your soul is knit together with her soul. Nevertheless, still, it is only God that looks upon your heart. It is only God that knows the innermost core of your being. So personal suffering is personal. Other humans cannot get inside our soul, but God knows our thoughts and intents. The Word of God is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And we can appreciate that. Not only other humans, angels. Angels cannot get inside your soul. Angels cannot read your mind. Angels cannot. Uh, and so this is uh, a blessing from the Father in the protection that we have there. 
On to verse 11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. We do have a future destiny, and on the basis of that future destiny, we should, it should motivate our present diligence. Future destiny should motivate present diligence. Verses 11 and 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know, just ask yourself, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And if it seems right, make sure it is right. Does it conform to Scripture? Does it conform to the will of God? Am I on the path of righteousness or am I on the path that ends in death? Uh, what is the, the future destiny? Because I don't want to be a part of the house of the wicked. That's going to be destroyed. I want to be in the tent of the upright. That's what will flourish. And so that future destiny. And many other passages I think that point to the same issue, including back in Proverbs chapter 3 or Ephesians 3 or um, 2 Peter, the different references to a future destiny. Since you know, the, you know the heavens and earth are going to be destroyed by fire, and since these things are going to be destroyed in such a way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Understand what is the future destiny and what should motivate my present diligence. That's a powerful point. And I, I deal with that occasionally when I'm talking to folks uh, outside of this assembly, when I talk to believers. They name the name of Christ. They attend uh, you know, a, a different style of church. And eschatology not only is not a focus, it is deliberately excluded. It is, it, people, the, the pastor doesn't get into it. The church doesn't want to get into it. They intentionally say, no, we don't touch prophecy. We don't get into prophecy. Eschatology, all that, that just leads to fights among people. And we don't want to be a part of that. And so, well, okay, I don't want to be a part of that either. I don't want to, I'm not promoting fights. I'm promoting, though, the whole counsel of the Word of God, including prophecy. Prophecy motivates diligence. The imminent rapture of the church, knowing it could happen this morning, means I'm going to make sure I stay in fellowship this morning. I don't want to get caught carnal when the trumpet sounds. There's no time to confess your sins when in the twinkling of an eye you're going to be transformed and caught up to be with the Lord in the air. So I want to be in fellowship when that trumpet sounds. All right? (laughs) Future destination motivate present diligence. Point nine, emotions may be misleading. Emotions may be misleading, but true satisfaction comes by staying in the will of God. And you look at verses 13 and 14, and you see, you know, um, even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. Emotions can be misleading. You can, you can use entertainment and fun and games and happiness. You can uh, create some artificial laughing in order to uh, drown out or ignore or pretend that you don't have the sorrow that you really have. You know, how many people do you know uh, have a heart that's in pain, but they're using laughter to mask it, to hide it, to drown it out, to pretend it's not there? And so they're living their life as a drunk or a drug addict or whatever, a sex fiend. They're, they're finding things to try to promote a happiness that will help them to forget their, their misery. All right? So, uh, yeah, emotions can be horribly misleading. They can be manipulated, terribly manipulated. That's why, you know, you... Somebody tells you to trust your feelings. That's dumb. <laughs> okay, Feelings? Are you kidding me? They can be manipulated and twisted. and that's uh, I'm going to trust God. How about that? And then as I trust in God and trust in His Word, then I still may have these awful feelings, but that's all right. The Word of God will work through that. And He'll bring me through a season of sadness. Sadness uh, might be productive, might be a good thing. Let's learn what i got to learn in the sadness. Okay? And he'll bring me through that. 
And then, uh, you know, the rest of that's in His hands too. True satisfaction comes by staying in God's Word. And I tell you, when you're looking here, verses 13 and 14, even in laughter the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. The point is, don't be a backslider. Don't abandon the Word of God. That's not a, that's not a, a solution. Uh, walking away from doctrine is not a problem-solving device. <laughs> Just the opposite. Abandoning the Word of God just multiplies the problems because doctrine is what's going to sustain you. It's the Word of God that's going to give you stability. And yet, I've had it. I had a man look me in the eye when he resigned his membership and left the church. He said uh, he just uh, he, he was tired of the angelic conflict. And he said the teaching at Austin Bible Church is too solid, it's too deep, it's too good. And to be a part of this ministry means you're going to be a part of testing. And he said, I'm tired of the testing. And I just want to go to a church, I can get a little bit of milk, I can, I can be fed some small things and not be under the angelic conflict that a deep teaching church like this is going to put you under. Looked me right in the eye and said that. Said that, uh, that he wanted less doctrine so there would be less angelic conflict. And I thought, wow, it's heartbreaking. You want to stay? Are you kidding me? You need more teaching. You need more solid teaching. And there it is. All right. So, um, backslider? No. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. And that's fun too. The poetry in that is beautiful because, you know, to be full, to be uh, filled with his own ways, you know, think about a meal and you eat this meal and now you're full, but you're not satisfied. See the difference? Whereas the good man will be satisfied with his. And you, maybe you're not full, but you're satisfied. Anyway. <laughs> In fact, as one of the diet techniques is you learn how to be satisfied even when you're not full. And uh, portion control, and there you go. 20 pounds down, 10 more to go. We're keep, keep working on it, all right? Emotions can be misleading, but true satisfaction comes by staying in God's will. All right, so let's move on then. Let's look, what's verse 15 about? Um knucklehead, right? The naive. Here's Pethy. Remember Pethy? We've studied Pethy several times, even way back to chapter 1, and we've seen Pethy a number of times. I'm just calling him Pethy. I'm giving him a proper name based on the Hebrew word here. For the naive. This is Mr. Gullible. This is my sister, okay? (laughs) All right? I grew up with the most gullible human being on the planet, and she was my little sister. And let me tell you, that was fun. It was so much fun because Mary would believe anything you told her until she found out that you were teasing and that you were lying or whatever, that it wasn't true. And then she would, you know, come back and be all upset. Why did you, you know, tell me that? You know, why don't people in Australia fall off because they're underneath the globe? You're looking at the globe and Australia's underneath there. Okay. All right. I love my sister. And she will probably listen to this class. And so I will, I will love her about that. The bumps on the road. Yes, that's right. That's another one. The bumps on the road. Those little road bumps, uh, little things. That's so that blind people can drive and they won't be crossing over the, the lanes into oncoming traffic. Anyway, I love my sister. And she has grown up and, and she's not, she's probably half as gullible as she used to be. But um, that's because she's sweet, all right? And she's like my mother. 
she's very sweet, very trusting, and, and, and all that. Well, anyway, so when I think of the naive, okay, but this is a problem. Now, Proverbs communicates naive in such a way that here's a person that's willfully keeping himself ignorant longer than he should. How long will you remain naive, O Pethy? How long? By now you should have grown through that. Yes, I can point to a psalm that says God is gracious towards the naive, that, that God's grace can overcome our, our ignorance and our naivete. But the idea that I'm going to prolong that and just bank on God's graciousness when by now I should know better, we can't do that. All right, That's an abuse of the psalm that, uh, that discusses that. So um, here's the naive. Now the naive believes everything. But the sensible man considers his steps. And so uh, I want to kind of contrast this with a couple of proper names, starting with Pethy, P-E-T-H-I-Y, Pethy. Pethy trusts anything and everything. And that's a problem. Because faith is to be applied to appropriate objects, not inappropriate objects. And a, a particularly a person, if a person has proven to be unfaithful, why do you believe them? See, God is infinitely faithful, eternally faithful. That's why God is the ultimate object of our faith. Uh, we can always trust God. But when you trust someone that's not trustworthy, that lets you down. Pethy trusts anything and everything. But a room, now here's the prudent, here's the sensible man. And this is arum, okay? And if you really want to be Hebrew about it, then close your throat before you say the ah in arum. Say arum. It's almost, it's a, it's a hard closure on the throat. Not quite a K or a G, but a, it's kind of like an NG sound almost, a arum, all right? So pethy versus arum. Arum stops to consider. A room is what Jesus spoke of when he said, be harmless as a serpent, or be shrewd as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. We, we're, we should be shrewd. We have to have a sanctified shrewdness because the world will give us a very unsanctified shrewdness. The world will give us a shrewdness where we fight fire with fire, we get down and dirty with the, with the ugly sinners and all the rest. We don't want that kind of shrewdness, Right? We want to have a sanctified shrewdness whereby we are in a room where the Word of God opens our eyes to the ugliness. And we don't think about it, we don't dwell on it, but we know it for what it is and we stay away from it. Okay? We know it, we know it for what it is and we stay away from it. That's shrewdness. Shrewdness stops to consider. And we see it here. Alright, so kind of breaking it down into two halves then, the 15A part and the 15B part. When I understand uh, that Pethy trusts anything and everything, well, it comes back again in chapter 22, chapter 26, and chapter 27. So we can see these fairly quickly. Proverbs 22, 3. The prudent see, and this is the same room, by the way, for the prudent. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. They're so naive they don't see it, or even if they do, do see it, they don't care. They don't recognize what it is. They act like, oh well, and they just keep on going. But the prudent sees the evil and he hides himself. And this is, uh, 
something we have to discuss when we talk about um, being careless. The next verse in chapter 14 talks about being careless. And accidental evil is still evil. All right, and, and we're held accountable, and we can't just use carelessness. Oh, well, it was an accident. Oh, well, I didn't know. You should have known. You didn't have your eyes open. You were told to have your eyes open. And so we'll, uh, we'll tackle that in, in the next verse. Uh, but again, that's Proverbs 22.3. The prudent, this is a room again, sees the evil and hides himself. But the naive, but pethy, goes on and are punished for it consequences there. Chapter 26 and verse 25. Now once we get to chapter 26 we go beyond the personal and public wisdom section and we get to the additional Proverbs that were added during the days of Hezekiah. Sometimes it's called the book of Hezekiah because of the introduction in uh, 25.1. These also are Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah king of Judah transcribed and these following chapters then contain the Hezekiah material. They're, they're originally Solomon's though, so we're fine with that. Um, chapter 26 and verse 25. Um, when, when he speaks, now I've got to back up a little bit, there's a, a liar here. Um, all right. There's a long context on this. We'll just pick it up. Um, the verse 22, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are the burning lips and a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. So this is a false teacher. This is a wicked person. This is a problem. And when he speaks graciously, do not believe him. See, here's the wrong object for your faith. Here's the wrong person, the wrong message, here's a problem. And if you just believe something you shouldn't believe, the Scripture says, woe is you. Why are you trusting in the wrong object? So when he speaks graciously, do not believe him. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Wow. Okay, and uh, there you go. So the wrong object for faith, and yet Pethy trusts it. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, he's speaking nice, you know. Yeah, like that, uh, you know, that snake that tells you he loves you and he's pressuring you for something you know is not biblical. Okay, are you going to listen to those flattering words? Oh, baby, you're so beautiful. Oh, you're different. You're different than all those other girls. Oh. You know, all this horrible stuff. Yeah, don't believe it. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him. Chapter 27 and verse 12. A prudent man, a room again, sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. Almost word for word like we had in chapter 22. All right, so there it is. Um, Pethy just goes off, right? And think about it, you know, this is not good in your Christian walk. Uh, the, uh, you know, because you hear something on the radio and just go into a panic, or you read something in a book and just, oh, my pastor was wrong. Slow down, relax. What are you dealing with here? What are you believing? What are you trusting? And ask yourself, are you just believing everything that comes down the pike? 
Let's stop and consider. That's what Larum does. Stops to consider. And there's not, it's not an insult when you do that. Acts 17.11 says it's noble-minded to do that. Even if it's coming from somebody that you should trust, like the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't insulted when the Bereans listened to what he said and then checked him out. I'm not insulted when you listen to what I say and you check me. I don't want you to check me out. Acts 11, or Acts 17, 11. Acts 17, 11. In the first nine verses, Paul's got some great ministry in Thessalonica, but he has to leave town. And so they send him away by night in verse 10, and they come to Berea. And they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. And here's why it's described this way. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I love that. Check it out. Go dig into the Scriptures. Find what does the Scripture say. And it doesn't matter if it's Paul and Silas. Were they insulted? (laughs) Were they bothered by this? Not at all. It is... It is your protection. It's the protection of the flock. See if it's in the Word of God. If it's not in the Word of God, then don't believe it. If it's contrary to Scripture, don't believe it. We're not a cult. You don't swallow everything the preacher says just because it's Pastor Bob or Pastor Theme or Pastor whoever. All right? They can be, they're sinners, they're they're fallible, they're uh, incomplete, they don't know everything. they, They can be flat out wrong. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you find something that's being taught today and then you go back and you find an MP3 from 20 years ago, say, you know what, in, in uh, 1998 you taught that different than you're teaching it today. Really? What was the MP3? Let me know. You know, and it helps especially if you can give me the, the minute marker. But if I have to, I'll listen to the whole MP3 if I have to. But, but you know, find me the minute marker, tell me was it Eight minutes and 45 seconds, I said this dumb thing. Okay, I'll go listen to it. And then if I have to, I'll publicly repent of that in front of the flock. And I'll admit, you know what? I learned something since 1998. I've learned a couple things since 1998. Maybe that's how I understood it back then. I wasn't trying to lie to anybody. That's how I understood it back then. Here's how I understand it now. All right? And maybe 20 years from now, I'll go back to how I understood it back then. (laughs) Or I'll understand a third way. How about that? I'm going to keep growing. I'm not going to stop growing. All right. So noble-minded, and I love that. That's absolutely beautiful. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. And so he writes to those people that were less noble-minded than the Bereans in 1 Thessalonians, right? So he finishes up with the Bereans, then he goes to Athens, he gets laughed out of town, and then he ends up in Corinth. And when he arrives in Corinth... He sits down and he writes a letter, not to the Bereans, he writes a letter to the Thessalonians. We don't have a book of the Bible to the Bereans. Can you imagine? (laughs) What would that have been like? Here they receive a book of the Bible and they're going to be noble-minded and check it out and see if these things are so. But he writes to the Thessalonians who were not quite as noble-minded and what does he tell them? Be like those Bereans. Search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. In 521 he says, examine everything carefully. 
just become copycats of those Bereans down the road. Even in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Literally, stop quenching the Spirit. A present active imperative that's negated indicates that uh, the activity was already underway, at least to some degree, in some respects. Stop quenching the Spirit. Stop despising prophetic utterances. You know what happens after Paul left? He'd been there three weeks, and then after he leaves, uh, a believer in their midst, all of a sudden, his giftedness as a prophet wakes up and, and he starts speaking by the leading of the Holy Spirit and he says, thus saith the Lord. And uh, some of the fellow Thessalonians are looking at him like, who do you think you are? You know, Paul didn't teach us that. And then you got saved the same day we did. You know, we all got saved in those three weeks that Paul was here. Who do you think you are? And so they start kind of despising these prophetic utterances. And yet Paul says, no, 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 no. That's part of what it means to be in the first century church. This is, this is new church age doctrine. You don't have a New Testament yet. So uh, don't despise prophetic utterances. That's how you're going to get the New Testament. So don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. There's going to be some stuff that's not going to be good. There are going to be false prophets. They're going to have competing messages to the true prophets. So check it out. Compare what they're saying to Scripture. Check it out. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And if the Thessalonians are not pethy, they're going to do this. If the Thessalonians are larum, they will stop and consider he even writes to him a second time, and I didn't put it on the slide, but over in 2 Thessalonians <coughs> chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I think address the same issue here. So now he's writing to him a second time, probably just six months after the first letter. Very shortly after the first letter, he's now writing him a second letter because in the meantime somebody else had sent them a letter uh, saying that they were him. You get an email that says from Pastor Bob, but you click on it and it says a virus. Okay. Well, back then they didn't have email, but they got a letter from somebody claiming to be the Apostle Paul that said, um, we missed the rapture, we're now in the tribulation, get ready. <laughs> and Paul said, I didn't send that, that's wrong. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him with respect to the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episunagoge, our gathering together with Him. Only two times episunagoge shows up in the Bible. This is one, okay? Rapture doctrine is what we're talking about that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. Okay? Don't be quickly shaken. Stop. Consider. Think it through. Be a room from Proverbs 14, 15b. Okay? Don't be quickly shaken. That's what the devil wants to do. Get you all rattled. Don't think it through. Get you all in a panic mode. Don't think it through. Whatever you do, don't search the Scriptures, don't cycle doctrine, just, you know, react. Okay? That's what the devil wants you to do. And so he throws this thing at you, gets you all, and Colonel Theme called it Panic Palace. 
gets you all in panic palace and you just go off and do whatever. Dummy. Think it through. Stop. Cycle doctrine. Faith rest. Okay? Here's Paul. He says, do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, there's false spirits out there, or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay? If Pastor Bob ever gets in the pulpit and says, you missed the rapture, get ready for the tribulation, well, that's insane. Okay? Fire him and get a better pastor. We're not going to miss the rapture. We're not in the tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you. The day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. Rapture has to precede the day of the Lord. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction. Antichrist can't be revealed until after the rapture. Or the departure is called in verse 3. It's called an episunagoge in verse 1, our gathering together to meet him in the air. Or the departure from verse 3. So be oriented to your rapture doctrine and stop and consider. Think it through. Cycle what you know. Cycle what the Word of God says. And when a liar comes along, show him the door. 2 Peter 3.17 Right before you get to the verse that tells you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it warns you about what will keep you from growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Don't just swallow everything. Don't be pethy and believe everything that comes along. If you do that, you'll never grow. Be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? There's a fall from your own steadfastness. And we're all warned about that. Is this a warning of losing salvation? No, this is a warning of falling from steadfastness and buying into false doctrine and uh, not growing. More to say on that in Hebrews because we've got a fall that we're warned about in Hebrews. An evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's not a warning about losing salvation. That's a warning about apostasy leaving the uh, New Testament faith. So, Pethy trusts anything and everything, but Larum stops to consider. Be on guard. Don't be carried away. Recognize the, the liars for who they are and be done with them. They're called unprincipled in verse There's a triple un here in verse 16 and 17. They are untaught, unstable, and unprincipled. That's just a marvelous passage right there. That, that'll preach. <laughs> you can make a sermon out of that. Verse 16, uh, the difficult things of Paul, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. I love that. Untaught, unstable, unprincipled. And just watch out for that crowd. Reject it. Stay with the Word of God. Stay with faithful teachers. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be pethy, be a room. Now, 
uh, some subpoints under this, and I think it's worth expanding some of the things we actually were talking about in our um, informal hour with the men at nine o'clock. Faith in God is always the right object. Faith in God is always the right object. And God will faithfully provide evidence for trusting Him. God is faithful. And He faithfully manifests testimonies to His faithfulness. He he will give evidence. He doesn't just demand as a tyrant that you believe Him because He says so. Or that you believe Him with no evidence of any kind. Or that you believe Him irrationally despite no evidence at all. That's not faith. God presents evidence. God presents testimonies, witnesses to His faithfulness, witnesses to what He's promised. Things that are designed to persuade us. So we have a a patho. It's kind of curious to me. Patho is the Greek verb for persuade. And, And near as I can tell, it has no etymological link at all to the Hebrew pethi, which is um, gullible or naive. And yet uh, they both come across in English with kind of a similar sounding uh, peth. Anyway, um, faith in God is always the right object. And it's curious to me. So Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. What's the object of faith? God. So, he believed in the Lord. He believed in the Lord. And he, that's the Lord, reckoned it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. This is a classic justification. We we teach this all the time. That faith is the response. God has made statements. God has made promises. God has uh, has uh, commanded, and we respond by faith. Faith is reckoned as righteousness. Faith is not meritorious. Faith is not um, rewarded. Faith is not meritorious. It does not deserve something. It does not earn something. It's not a wage. It is a a non-meritorious reckoning, non-meritorious imputation. So it doesn't say he believed God and therefore deserved to make himself righteous. He believed God and unmeritoriously did not deserve anything, but God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And so there we have it. And what's the object of faith? The object of faith is the Lord. The object of faith is Yahweh, the Lord, the object of Abraham's faith. Now the promise is uh, the information that's conveyed. The good news is the information that's conveyed. And the verses that precede that talk about the good news of an heir and a son and a covenant and these things he could look forward to. That's uh, information, that's good news of promises spoken. But the object of faith is the Lord. He believed in the Lord. God will faithfully provide evidence for trusting Him. And uh, some curious expressions here. Get over to Exodus and you start to see some of this. 
um, comes out in Moses and his insecurities. Uh, well, what if they don't believe me? Moses said, uh, so God is calling Moses now to go be the Savior, to go be the Deliverer, the Kinsman Redeemer. Moses is going to go down to the place of bondage and he is going to redeem his brethren out of their bondage. And you talk about a type of Christ, this is Moses. Okay? But Moses feels unworthy (laughs) of all this. And Moses says, well, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Two different aspects. I find that curious. What if they will not believe me or even listen to what I say? And that's, uh, that's curious, because if you don't listen, then you don't have the information. Uh, so first of all, you've got to listen. How will they believe if they do not hear? Right? How do you believe if the gospel is not preached? So you've got to listen. You've got to hear and believe. Well, now Moses is saying, well, now I'm the messenger. What if they don't believe me? Because if they don't believe you, they're well, really not believing is the one who sent you. Okay? For they may say... The Lord has not appeared to you. Now, on its surface, is technically, I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that. Uh, they shouldn't be pethy and just believe Moses because he said, oh yeah, God sent me. They need to have a basis by which they can know, wow, God sent you. <laughs> All right? And once we know God sent you, then we're accountable. We've got to believe what you say. We've got to believe what God is saying through you. We've got to believe you. We've got to believe the Lord. All these things. So they may say, the Lord does not appear to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, it's a staff. So he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. I, I would do. <laughs> I would be out of there so fast. All right. You know, just, you. I'd have the heebie-jeebies. I'd be thinking, ooh, I was holding that. Just, you know, this is my favorite walking stick or whatever. And then now it's been a snake this whole time? What, what happened? I'd be, yeah. And then the Lord said, quit running, go back. Stretch out your hand and grasp it by his tail. Hello, Lord? Uh, if I, that's snake, I, wanna, I don't want to grab it by its tail. I don't want to grab it at all. Let me tell you, I just want to smash it. I want to find a, a larger stick and smash this thing. Um, and if I have to grab it with my bare hands, I want to grab it up by the head and, and clamp its mouth shut and just squeeze it and snap its neck or do something with it. I don't grab it by the tail? That seems kind of dumb. Right? Because however long this snake is, grabbing it by the tail means it can then twist its little snaky body around and bite me. Right? Tell me I'm not the only one that ever thought of this. This is, this is grabbing that by the tail is one of the dumbest things I can think of. But God told Moses to do it. So sometimes, again, this is, this is the testing of our faith. Are we going to be obedient to what God tells us? What if it, you know, God told me to do it. It, it seems kind of dumb. But He told me to do it. So I, it's my faith. It's my test. Do I believe that God is faithful? Do I believe that He knows what He's doing? Do I believe He's got a reason for what He's doing? Do I believe that he wants me to be bit by this thing. Okay. All right, Lord. You want me to kill my son next? What do you want me to do? That was Abraham's test. Here's Moses' test. Grab it by the tail. All right. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. All right, cool. A little sneaky guy didn't twist around and bite him. 
all right, well, this will work. And this becomes then a power or an ability or a miracle that Moses can do anytime he wants to. Moses now has the gift of staff to snake whatever, okay? That's now his gift or his power, his superpower, whatever. He's, he's a prophet by gift. He's, well, don't think of it as a gift. He's not a New Testament believer. He doesn't have a spiritual gift like you and I have spiritual gifts. But he is called to the office of prophet, and as a prophet he is granted miraculous signs to perform. Not for the gee whiz look at me value, but for the credentials. He's given miracles to perform so that people will say, wow, you're from God. And it gives the authority for what he says. You're from God. I must believe what God is telling me. So, that they may believe. That they may believe. See, God is not demanding belief without evidence. God is not demanding belief on the part of humans for no reason whatsoever. Just, I said it, you believe it, and how dare you? No, He gives evidence. He gives signs. He gives credentials. Because you and I are, in His image, you and I are thinkers. You and I are rational beings. You and I are expected to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're expected to think it through. And if something is irrational, God does not expect us to believe in spite of rationality. So he gives evidence. And then on the basis of the evidence he provides, he expects faith. So that's the, uh, the verse there in verse 5. Then he gets another thing, another trick, another, uh, not a trick, another superpower, another ability, another sign to perform. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom, by the way. That's how I pronounce bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. So whatever his garment was like, he probably had a robe, it probably had a fold in the garment, it probably um, had a, like a pocket, uh, typically. That's where you would keep your money pouch, someplace it was hard to be a pickpocket. Um, and so, I don't, I'm, I'm not really wearing a shirt like that, but you know, something when you stick your hand into your shirt, and then he pulls it out, and now it's leprosy. And then he gets to do it again, now put your hand in your bosom again, so he put his hand in his bosom again, and when he took out of his, of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So now that he's got a second sign to do. There's the staff to snake thing, and now there's the hand leprosy thing. And if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. So there was two signs given, and they're called the first and the last. And these are there's shadow typology in this. It's fun to consider, you know, different. Obviously, when we're talking about the first and the last, we've got things related to Jesus and aspects there. But if they will not believe, and it's curious to me, it's not cannot believe, it's will not believe. All right? Will not believe. Because, you know, there are certain schools of theology that say they can't believe until he makes them believe. But the Bible says they will not believe even though they can and even though they're looking at the evidence. All right. And if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. Here's third miracle. 
water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground, the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so now there's the and um, there's a first sign, there's the last sign, and then this is after the last, but this is a um, a consequence of not believing the first and the last is blood on dry ground. All right, well, more doctrine there. Uh, down to verse uh, that's eight and nine. Finally, uh, way down at the end of the chapter, verse thirty-one. So the people believed. Thankfully, Moses did his tricks and did his little miracles here. And um, so um, Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then Moses or the Lord, I think Moses then performed the signs in the sight of the people. Stick the snake thing, hand in bosom. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, that He had seen their affliction, they bowed low and they worshipped. Alright? So, faith in God is always the right object, and God will faithfully, and God will, not with, God will faithfully provide evidence for trusting Him. Not with, will. God will faithfully provide evidence for trusting Him. And that's why the wilderness judgments are so severe. Numbers 14.11 Numbers 14.11 we see um, what's chapter 14? Well chapter 13 is the spies. Chapter 14 is 10 spies in rebellion. (laughs) We're going back to Egypt. Moses, you're fired. We're done with you. We're going back to Egypt. And the people are going with the ten spies and not listening to Caleb and Joshua and rebelling against Moses. Chapter 14 is a sad chapter. All right? And chapter 14 provokes God to wrath and provokes God to a vow. He's going to swear in His wrath that they shall not enter His rest. Okay? How many times does the God who cannot lie take a vow? And when the God who cannot lie does take a vow, does that get your attention? There's not many times that He does. Because He can't lie. He's the God of truth. Anyway, stay tuned for that because that comes up in Hebrews as well. Numbers 14, 11. So so here's verses 1 through 10. The whole, you know, the people are all in a panic. And uh, all boohooing because uh, the the report of the spies that that the Lord brought them out here to kill them with the giants and the the wives are going to become plunder and the little ones are going to become plunder and we need to go back to Egypt and woe is us. And so in verse 5, Moses and Aaron fall on their face and verse 6, Joshua uh, and Caleb fall on their face and... um, they're pleading with the people to listen to doctrine, but they're not going to listen to doctrine. So all of the uh, congregation in verse 10 said to stone them with stones. So the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Notice it's not cannot, will not. They can, but they won't. How long will they not believe in me despite 
all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Ten plagues on Egypt, parting the Red Sea, giving them water from the rock, giving them quail from heaven, giving them manna morning by morning. Every miracle that he's given, they have more than enough evidence. They've got so much evidence that that refusal to believe is inexcusable. So despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence, dispossess them. I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses says, nope, Lord, you can't do that. Can't do that. And uh, Moses passes his volitional test here. Uh, down in verse 19, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Notice, they are a redeemed people. You forgave them in Egypt. You redeemed them out of their bondage. How will you not forgive them now? Right? You and I, when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can He not forgive us now? Because we are a redeemed people. When He forgave us back then, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See how that works? So our positional forgiveness is a guarantee of unlimited experiential forgiveness. Every time when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Notice also, what is this an example of? This is intercessory confession. Moses is confessing not his own sins, he's confessing their sins. So think about that. If we confess our sins, well, who's we? What are our sins? And can I be an intercessor for my brother's sins? Can I be an intercessor? And so I have examples of this in Scripture. Every example I have in Scripture, though, is spiritual leadership on behalf of those that they're responsible for. Noah to his children, Moses to his people, Daniel to his people, uh, a father to an ignorant daughter when she takes a rash vow, um, a husband to a wife when she speaks as one of the silly women. Okay, That's Job to Mrs. Job. In every case, um, also Job had intercessory confession on behalf of his adult children. Maybe they've sinned unknowingly and he offers uh, uh, a priestly sacrifice on behalf of their sins. So um, every time I've seen intercessory confession is always accepted by God, but it's, it's the examples I can point to inductively uh, in, in Scripture are always spiritual leadership on behalf of those that they're accountable for. And so then I'm left wondering, wow, what might Adam have done after Eve ate the apple? What might Adam have done? Could he have been her kinsman redeemer? When she gives it also to her husband and he says, I'm not eating that. Okay. Could, it, could the first Adam have been the last Adam? Had he? Uh, we don't know the what ifs, but anyway. Um, she ate, he ate, and they both needed a savior at that point. But the, but the issue could have been had God accepted a, an intercessory confession on behalf of the one that you're accountable for. So here's Moses 
praying, saying, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, according to your word, on the basis of intercessory confession, God is granting temporal forgiveness. But indeed, as I live, uh uh-oh, this is serious. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow and the stakes he lays down is his very life. The God who cannot die says, as I live. (laughs) Wow. You realize how doubly powerful this is? This is like, you know, wrap your mind around this. Infinity multiplied. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow and the God who cannot die says, as I live. As I live. As I live. Right? That's crossed my heart and hope to, to die. That's if I'm lying, I'm dying. If that's, you know, that's whatever it is, that means I'm staking my life on this as I live. If I don't fulfill this vow, you may kill me. That's, that's, a, that's a vow that is, is of the utmost seriousness. And God puts it in those terms. As I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. He doesn't revoke their redemption. He doesn't put them back in bondage. He doesn't unsave them. He doesn't repart the Red Sea and push them back through into Egypt but they will not enter my rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall by no means see the land I swore to their fathers, nor shall shall any of those who spurned me see it. And so they shall not enter my rest, they shall not live. And remember, this is all based upon, indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. They are throwing away their capacity to operate in the land of the blessed, the land of rest, the land of glory. They're throwing away their position as stewards and representatives of God's glory to the Gentile nations around them. We do the same thing, by the way, in the church age when we fail to enter into His rest. We are not throwing away our salvation, we are throwing away our privilege to dwell in the land of the blessed, to dwell in the land of of rest to dwell in the place of milk and honey blessings where we get to represent God to this lost and dying world. And we throw that all away and we perish in the wilderness of our faith. That's the warning of Hebrews and we'll be dealing with that in some upcoming Sundays. You know, faith in the wrong object is never praised for its own sake. Faith in the wrong object is never praised for its own sake. So faith is not faith, right? They don't say, well, all faith is faith. Oh, well, they, they're very devout in their faith. Yeah, I'm sure they are. The Muslim believes his Quran so much he blows himself up. That's a lot of faith. And it counts for nothing. Because the value in faith is in the object of faith, not in the fervency with which the believer believes it. If you fervently believe a lie, your faith is worthless. If you believe the wrong object, your faith is worthless. 
if you believe the right object, your faith is infinite, eternal life. <laughs> right? Believing in Christ for eternal life, what's the value of that? Infinity. Everything. Now this is curious to me because we already read Genesis 15.6. Right? Our verb here for believe, our verb for amuna, uh, for faithful or for believe, for trust, it's where we get even the English word amen comes from the Hebrew amuna or amen. Okay? And it's our verb that we're dealing with in Proverbs 14 this morning. Pethi just amunas everything. He believes everything. Abraham amunad God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And it's curious to me, three times that amuna shows up in, the, in Genesis, the first one was the positive example with Abraham believing God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The other two times though are negative examples. Negative examples of faith. Why does God give us one positive example and two negative examples of faith here in the book of Genesis? So what are we talking about? Genesis 42.20 and I got like two minutes and three seconds. Genesis 42.20 We teach you not to do this in your homiletics class. Have a better conclusion than just rushing through at the end. Genesis 42.20 See, uh, (laughs) Joseph has his brothers in his clutches. He uh, is accusing them of being spies. He knows they're not. But he accuses them of being spies. Uh, They've told him a story about the baby brother still being alive. And he doesn't believe them. He doesn't believe them. Why? Because they're liars and murderers themselves. They sold him into slavery. They threw him down a well. Why should he believe that they, what they're saying, that Benjamin's still alive. Why should he believe that? So he says, um, by this you will be tested, verse 15, by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. (laughs) Okay? By the life of Pharaoh. You think that's a serious vow? Okay? You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Wow. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for your famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. So much doctrine in this. But you see, Joseph is not pethy. Joseph's not just going to believe him. Joseph's going to be a room. He's going to stop and consider. And he's going to demand evidence for his faith. So they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen, therefore the distress has come upon us. They're chatting amongst themselves about the wicked thing they did to Joseph and he's sitting right there, he was dropping on the whole thing. He doesn't, you know, they don't know he speaks Hebrew. <laughs> and Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? I told you so. Do not sin against the boy, you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They didn't know, however, that Joseph understood everything they were talking about. There was an interpreter between them. Isn't that great? 
you really speak the language, but you use the interpreter anyway, so they don't know that you understand what they're saying. Anyway, that's the example. Don't believe every liar. Genesis 45, 26. I've got to close them over time now. Um, they told him, this is uh, Jacob now, they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Why would Jacob believe those liars? <laughs> you know, he has 12 sons, 10 of them are liars. He thinks Joseph is dead. Benjamin's the only one he believes anymore. And they're saying, hey, Joseph's still alive. I don't believe you guys. I'm not peppy. Okay? You guys are snakes. You guys are liars. Anyway, they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father revived. There's evidence There's reason by which to trust. There's reason by which to believe. So Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Interesting to me. All right, we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for faith. I thank you for you, Father, being the ultimate object of our faith. I thank you for your son. He went to the cross and died that we might have eternal life. I thank you, Father, for him, the object of our faith unto eternal life. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.